LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and today we present part two of our interview with Thomas Sheridan, discussing his latest book, The Anvil of the Psyche. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I recommend that you do that first. If you're listening to this as a download or on a mobile device, you can find part one of the interview at LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com. Another thing that I like that you you spend some time on uh, with your new book, just to remind listeners we're talking about The Anvil of the Psyche, is that you you were just saying a moment ago you weren't sure how long this was going to go on for, but it's been going on for a very long time. And I, I very much like the way you draw analogies uh, with ancient history and you know other lots of historical periods. Um, one thing you mentioned which stuck out for me was the fact we use the term star for our stars, you know, these people in these positions, whether they've earned it or not. And that puts them literally in the heavens and you draw some lines back to ancient societies with that. And also in your section where you're talking about Lady Gaga, you mentioned that music and, and sports also, where these take place, they're like temples. They function like temples would have done thousands of years ago. And that when you watch a rock concert or a sports game, quite often that these can be like magical ceremonies. And a lot surrounding a lot of this um, are the cornerstones of magic when you boil it down, including particularly symbolism. Absolutely. You know, people talk about the hollow turf or the sacred turf. We used to walk through the twin towers of the old Wembley Stadium. Why was there two big towers at Wembley Stadium? Because it tapped into these archetypal ideas of that, you know, very sort of, I don't know if it's Freemasonic, but it's definitely the idea of the two towers is you passing into the, the material world into the into the world of the spirit. That's why the, the moon card in the tarot has two t- passing between two towers. It represents the same idea. You look at stadiums like the San Siro in Milan with the four big towers on either side. You feel like you're in a castle, especially at night. It's incredible. And then rock cons is the same. Blackness, is, they've known since ancient Babylon that when someone is held in darkness and they're illuminated by torchlight, fire or electric light in the modern age that it has a very hyperactive effect on the melatonin in the, in the in the human brain and it makes the information and the actual idea penetrate deeper into the subconsciousness it's very powerful and it's very clever and that's why rock concerts are you know are held at night that's why it, you know you go to see a, a football match or a rookie match under floodlights it seems so much different almost more special or something at night under the under the floodlights i think that's why the champions league has become like the dominant sport you know football you know thing in the world today it's simply because it takes place on a wednesday or thursday night in the darkness with the lights of something again it's almost like a temple thing it goes back to the idea even of you know if you were a middle a serf in the middle ages say in france or lombardy or somewhere or in you know 
southern Germany and you travel the long distance to like a big cathedral like Notre Dame in Paris or the Dom in Cologne and you saw this edifice that was enormous gigantic big concrete box and then you walk inside or stone box and then you walk inside you've ever been in these cathedrals they're pitch black inside except the incredible colors that are streaming through the stained glass from the windows and this, the effect that that would have had on the psyche of the people in those times would have been astounding to think when you just think about it it would have been such a transformative and transcendental spiritual experience even if it was fake it would still would have had an enormous effect on these people to see these colors coming from drab and dreary mottle and you know attached villages and they suddenly see these colors and there was the bishop at the front in his golden robes and candles lit everywhere lady gaga shows today work exactly the same way she plays on i don't know if it's her or her people could be both could be her whoever's behind it it's absolutely brilliant the music is awful i've no time for it it's none the script when i when i've seen a few of our videos live there's even one i saw as incredible as it made sound where she redid a freemasonic initiation ritual now this is somebody who knows exactly how to get into people's minds or her handlers know this and it you know it is brilliant i have to admit that it is remarkable use of symbolism and uh, hence that's why she's so popular now, we've been talking about um, the violence in the past, um, the bread and circuses of uh, ancient Rome you mentioned, and of course you had the gladiators there as well, bloodshed for the entertainment uh, of the people. And you've drawn parallels between that now and the importance of sports, in particular football. You know, America has its own, um, you know, baseball, basketball, what have you. And, you know, it, different regional and cultural differences around the world but the same function being performed by some kind of sporting activity but uh obviously the violence has gone out of it largely certainly people don't die in sport very often these days you know a few old guys maybe get hit by a golf ball real golf ball you know people have died at formula one but this is not part of the entertainment not intended to be anyway but we're now seeing war as theater particularly in this information age you know 24-hour communications and it reminds me nothing more of the direction we're going in then a film called Rollerball, um, which was in the 1970s, and it was a very good film. A lot of important messages in there, particularly about the shape of a, what a corporate society would look like. Uh, it was remade very badly, I have to say, later on. But if people want to check that out, 1970s film starring James Caan called Rollerball. And that was once viewed as a dystopian fantasy, but I actually have watched that several times in recent years. And it actually looks a lot like where we're going. And we may not get back to blood sport again, as in pe people like you and me being put in a ring and, you know, two men enter, one man leave. But perhaps when we've seen battles being staged, we've seen incidents in theatres of war that have been provably produced for television consumption. I just wonder if that could be, you know, part of, the, of a deliberate um, policy. Well, it's interesting, the whole thing of how that violence affects people. It's almost like they compensate for the violence. They don't have the, like the lack of kind of warrior experiences or sort of hunter-gatherer experiences in, in real life. It's, mentioned, it's funny you mentioned rollerball because I remember actually thinking that I was watching a rollerball you know, game. Uh, years ago in New York, it was, it was in the early 90s, it was when the New York Rangers ice hockey team won the Stanley Cup. And it was the first time they won it in 50 years, and the fans went absolutely mental. 
but not as mental as if they were when there was a fight. There's always fights during American ice hockey games. I mean, big brawls. But the guys don't really get hurt because they're they're so heavily padded. But they, they're big brawls. They, they they happen a couple of times during games, very very often. And that's the main re. And I would look around, and it would be all these guys who worked in you know offices or factories or truck drivers, and they wouldn't be the kind of guys who would have that kind of sort of visceral sort of like violent on the edge adrenaline pumping experience. But they definitely would have that fed to them in in a compensatory manner by these fights during these uh, these ice hockey games and that that i remember even thinking about rollerball and it's funny you mentioned the 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 corporate aspects of it because what you don't see on tv during these american uh, ice hockey games and the basketball games which are held in very big arenas like the meadowlands and uh, the madison square gardens that above the court are gigantic monitors that show advertisements with the sound playing an incredible volume. That's why courtside tickets are so valuable because you're below the ads and you can watch the game. And you have a stadium of maybe 20, 25,000 people. I would say about 15, 15 to 20,000 people in that arena are not are directly facing a gigantic monitor playing ads. And when you have a a goal scored or in basketball someone would score some points, you'd have like you'd have like that score sponsored by a corporation so it's already there and it's in, in, in not as you know not as powerful as rollerball but it's, it is there and it is getting there and it'd be interesting to see i, I could actually see a day and we already have that sort of no hold sparse fighting in you know that they have on tv i wouldn't be surprised that the day came when something like rollerball came to be a reality yeah well it's um if you mentioned ice hockey actually and i completely forgotten about that when I was thinking about this but there's that film I believe it's called Slapshot yeah which is about ice hockey and that shows the violence of it um turning again to talk about uh, the world of music and famous people therein I'd like to do a bit of a contrast here and the first person I'm going to talk about is John Lennon and you go into his life and times and his um philosophy quite a lot in the book and you make a good point now Lennon knew what time it was you know, even in the early days with the Beatles, when they were just like a you know clean-shaven boys, nice little pop band, screaming girls, yeah, he was still switched on. But as he got older, it was clear his, his insight and his intelligence became more apparent. And he had charisma, and he could he had attention on him all the time. He knew how to get a message across, and he advocated action in in various areas of his life. And you tell the story of how he was for his troubles, he was taken down. And then eventually, of course, we all know he was taken out. Yeah, in June 6, 1968, John Lennon was being interviewed, I think it was by ITN or ITV. And somebody had asked him why was he so involved in politics. And he said, and you can find this video on YouTube, it's out there. He said, our society is run by insane people for insane objectives. I think we're being run by maniacs for maniacal ends. And I think I'm liable to be put away from for as insane for expressing that that's what's insane about it now what john lennon was talking about was there's what my other work covers he was talking about the psychopaths the psychopaths running the world and it was completely obvious in the 60s there was a a pile of cadavers from jfk all the way to uh, martin luther king all the way through the 60s and they were just it was quite obvious between that and the vietnam war and many other things that were going on in the 60s like northern ireland and stuff like that there was some there was some serious things wrong with the world now, this was the first time in history a pop star had done this. 
remember, pop star, you know, it's very easy for us to rem- in this age that we hear about Bono and we hear about Sting and Peter Gabriel. But in those days, pop stars, rock stars knew their places. Your job was an entertainer. You, you, you said nothing else. You just went on stage, you sang your songs, you talked about music, and that was the end of it. You know, you had people like Woody Guthrie, but Woody Guthrie was very unknown. He was—he would have been a very small thing singing to union people and stuff like that. But John Lennon, as someone of his stature, to go on television and essentially say the world was run by psychopaths, that was not going to uh, serve him well. Because he was, you know, he remembered the trouble he'd had when he said we were bigger than Jesus about three years earlier. Now, he just didn't mean that they were more important than Jesus. He just meant that we're more popular. And that was absolutely true. And he had people, rednecks in Alabama, trying to shoot him with a sniper's rifle uh, during concerts. So this is how, this is, this is a guy who had already set off the alarm bells. J. Edgar Hoover absolutely hated him. And what happened to Lennon at that point was very interesting. He changed he he absolutely changed. This this person, this Japanese aristocrat called Yoko Ono came into his life. She'd already been there, but she took center stage in his life. And it was just like at the point where John Lennon was definitely on the cusp of being probably one of the, the, the greatest social leader probably since Mahatma Gandhi. Suddenly, he's in the Amsterdam Hilton wearing a silly white suit, a beard and hair down to his backside, and he's dribbling and holding up signs saying bed and peace, unable to make a coherent argument when these journalists approach him. In fact, the whole thing is designed to make him look like a hairy harlequin, a ridiculous, absurd, you know, clown. And there she's sitting beside him reading a letter about, she hands him a letter that says that I, you know, I used an Anuja board, Mr. Lennon, and I've, you know, I've, think you're going to be assassinated and I've often been very suspicious of where that letter came from it was supposed to be a fan but I often wonder if he was being after that speech in 1968 where he said the world is run by maniacs I think that somebody got to him I think he was taken down and he was given the fright of his life I don't know what happened to him but that was a different John Lennon after that the songs went from being about helter skelter and revolution you know, glass and steel, songs like that, they became increasingly more soft, gentle. You know, imagine all the people. Before that, he was a radical who wanted a revolution. You know, you know songs about his son, which is okay, but it became very kind of uh, wimpy. He went from being a sort of a radical rocker to sort of like a Gilbert, Gilbert O'Sullivan-type balladeer. And he's imprisoned essentially within this Dakota building in Manhattan. During what should have been the creative flourishing time of his life, even when he got out of that and did the small things, like when he did Fame with David Bowie, I mean, people forget that he was really the person behind that song, even down to that amazing guitar riff. People forget, you know, people forget that John Lennon's entire potential as quite a remarkable creative and political force was switched off as he was isolated, basically a prisoner. Within, you know, inside this Dakota building. Suddenly, 1980 comes along, and he starts waking up. Late 70s, he's watching the punk rock movement in England. He's starting to make more and more appearances on the radio and television. He's no longer just talking about family life. He's talking about political issues. He's talking about how the 70s has really deteriorated, like the 60s has. And he's talking about things like American foreign policy in places like El Salvador and so on. Next thing you know, he's dead. 
So it's almost like I'm convinced, okay, I don't know, if, I can't say for certain if Mark Chapman was, was actually some kind of MK Ultra assassin. There's, there's actually very little evidence for that. But it just seems very strange it happened the way it did. There's also very bizarre inconsistencies around his assassination, like his, body, his bodyguards were called off. It makes no sense and things like that. But more importantly was I think that John Lennon in 1968 was somehow, in some way, either he was drugged, he was brainwashed, he was mind controlled, or more important, more likely, he got the fright of his life when he fully, fully realized the kind of people that he was dealing with. And maybe they approached him and told him what was going to happen to him, that he changed. And that, to me, that was, that's a pivotal point because that shows you the help how terrified they are of culture falling into the hands of people who can think for themselves. To turn to uh, two of uh, your fellow countrymen, I should say my fellow countrymen as well, it just depends on where you want to draw the border or if you want to draw it at all. Bono, U2 lead singer, Bono, everyone knows him, guy with the cool glasses, and Bob Geldof, who's worked with Bono, uh, and we think back to Live Aid in 1984, was the actual big concert. Now, these are stars, not so much Geldof, and he's not really a star, because of his music, he's just well known for the, the Live Aid thing predominantly and, you know, being a bit of an arse by all accounts. But Bono is just one of the biggest rock stars around. U2, biggest band in the world, arguably. And these are seen as stars in the world of music and entertainment who are um, advocating uh, change in the world. They are activists. They are getting in the faces of the establishment and politicians. They're making things happen. And they can certainly know how to put on a concert. But if I could speak to Bono or Bob Geldof, I would say to them, okay, you've been doing this, maybe with the best intentions in the world. You've been doing the feed them, send us your money now, all this for decades. Do you not think that if there was the will to change some of these situations, you know, particularly poverty or you know, widespread um, famine in Africa, do you not think that it, was, that it was within the wit of humanity to do this? Of course it could be done. And it hasn't been done because people, some, somebody somewhere doesn't want it done. And this is why I think that people like Bono and Geldof are just part of the controlling paradigm that you, you're speaking about with your book. Well, the funny thing is Geldof, I, you couldn't talk, I don't think you could talk to him about anything because the only thing that Bob Geldof is interested in is Bob Geldof. Bob Geldof is his industry. Uh, you know, has he really helped people? I'm sure he has. I'm sure, you know, he's he, in his own way, he means well. I genuinely do believe that Bono was sincere, though. I really do. I think it's it's almost hard to believe that someone as successful as him and, and been to the places he's been and spoke to the people he's been could be that naive. But I think there's a part of Bono that actually probably is naive in that level that I think he really does believe that stuff. So I've, I've more, much more time for Bono than I have for Geldof for lots of reasons because Bono's much more talented and you know the Boomtown Rats to me are like a, the worst band that ever came out of Ireland in terms of becoming successful. But um, the the thing with Bono is is that I, I, I used to see him with George Bush and I used to think to myself, what's really going on here? Does he really really believe that this sort of aristocratic psychopath? who starts wars for fun, really can help them, can really do things for Africa. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. It just seems to me that it's, it's very, you know, it's just, I, I can't figure out Bono. There's, there's, you know, there's days I say to, I think to myself, he must be some kind of like, you know, sort of like salesperson for the globalists. He's always around them. He's always making them look normal by him being next to them. And then there's other days I think to myself, 
I, I think the guy is really sincere. He really does mean it. And he really is trying to change it. And maybe it's naive. Or maybe he knows something we don't. Or who knows, maybe he's been got to in a different kind of way. I'll tell you a story, Greg, that's very, very interesting. It's a bit of YouTube trivia not a lot of people know about. Uh, in 1981, there was an Irish pop magazine called Head Pop Press. It's still going. And I can remember, I was a, I got, I got kind of got into U2 in the early days. I liked them up as far as war. I thought they were really good. And they were still in Ireland at the time. They were, they were, they were doing okay. They were playing the big clubs and the, and the, and the, the halls, that kind of thing. And, uh, they had signed some some management deal. Now, at the time, they were not a big band, even in Ireland. You know, relatively, they were they were they wouldn't be up the, they wouldn't be anywhere near the, le- the level of Thin Lizzy or the, the Rats were at that time, and uh, or even the Nolans. And I can remember very distinctly, and I do have this somewhere, and I'm I'm looking for it. Bono says in an interview, "We're going to be now. Remember, this is 1981. We're going to be bigger than the Who or the Stones." We're going to be the biggest band in the world. Now, how did a guy who was probably 19 or 20 know at a time when they were only playing clubs around Ireland and England that he was going to be in the biggest band in the world? You could say it was bravado, it was ego, but it was almost like I've often wondered, was he told something at that point that you play a certain role and we'll make you the biggest band in the world. And as as days, I often think about that. And there was one particular point in U2's career where it looked like, I often wondered if Bono was going through a nervous breakdown because you wonder if these things do get you eventually. It was the, I think it was the Zoo TV tour or the Pop Mart tour where he was this character called Mr. Mephisto where he, he had devil horns and painted face where he was a devil on stage. And it was supposed to be a bit of fun, but to me it looked like the man was actually cracking up a little bit. And he was acting kind of weird around that time as well. And I think there's a whole story behind you too that only you two, their management, and the people they're involved with know about. To return to then with John Lennon in mind and what happened to him when he sort of got a bit uppity and spoke his mind, we look at the wider world of celebrity. And when the celebrity world coincides with truth or controversy that could be have some truth in it it usually ends in disaster and we see this in the strange case of charlie sheen very interesting guy charlie sheen i really i I, it's funny you know what makes charlie sheen so interesting to me is how he comes from a family where they have a history of radicalism his dad is probably about as far as as far as you can get with radicalism in, in Hollywood as possible. I mean, he's took a lot of personal flack, Martin Sheen, for putting his his name on the line. And very good political issues. He was very outspoken about the USA involvement in El Salvador, and it actually caused him his career because he didn't do a lot of work after Apocalypse Now because he used his high profile. He had a heart attack during Apocalypse Now, and uh, he. It was probably because of stress or whatever, but maybe something happened. He says, if I'm going to use my fame to help the world. He's a very devout Catholic guy. He he believes in social justice and stuff like that, and good luck to him. So Charlie Sheen was raised in a home where there was a sense of kind of social justice. So therefore, something there has infused into his son. But Charlie Sheen has gone so completely off the rails. It's hard to know what the story is there. It's all, you know, he's, remember, he's got two sons, Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen, Emilio Estevez, who you never hear anything about, and Martin Sheen, who's a, uh, sorry, Charlie Sheen, who's a basket case. Uh, 
I really don't know what to make about Charlie Sheen. I'd be interested in hearing your your theories of it because I just think they just some again has something been done to this guy. Well, it's just that he got involved with, um, amongst other people, um, American uh, talk show host Alex Jones, who many listeners will be familiar with. And he, Charlie Sheen got involved with him. They developed some sort of, I don't know if you call it a friendship, but certainly they associated with each other. And Charlie then came out with some pronouncements regarding 9-11 and other controversial episodes. And then it was also, of course, he got latched onto by the, the media, you know, that the the people reporting Hollywood and was demonized and they start reporting on his private life and he was going through personal problems at the time and all this sort of overlapped and it became quite an, a murky sort of a picture. But what I saw, and it may not have been correct or, or maybe the whole picture, but I saw somebody coming to an awareness of something, wanting to look into something, wanting to express something and being shut down. And demonized and of course giving plenty of ammunition to the media in order for them to do that i think you're right about that i think i think a lot of people who are famous particularly in america know and think about a lot more things than they talk about and they keep it quiet but you, you get insights now and again there's an american radio shock jock guy called howard stern i don't know if you've heard of him very, very famous in America. I used to like his show a lot. Now, most when you ask most people about Howard Stern, the first thing they will talk about is that he always has like Playboy models on his show, and he porn stars, and he, he tells dirty jokes and stuff, and he, he get, and things like that. It's kind of like this so, sophomoric kind of humor. But very often now and again, in the same way people like Bill Hicks and that Australian comedian Steve Hughes he would slip out remarkable insights into his own personal feelings during a rant or something like that. And I used to listen to him just for that reason. And, you know, like the, the show could be absolutely funny at times. And I was actually a, quite a big fan of his comedy, being a huge comedy fan myself. And uh, occasionally I'd be like, what, was, what the hell was that? And he'd come out with this amazing political insight or social insight uh, that was quite remarkable. And it's almost a whole thing of the only way that anyone in Hollywood can get this stuff out is true comedy or true, just kind of destroying their reputation in terms of credibility. So they have to surround themselves with all kinds of smut and uh, sort of crass things. It's kind of what Frank's, what Frank Zappa did in order to get a statement out. Like Frank Zappa did some crazy stuff in his life. You know, he took a dump on stage in, one time in Stony Brook University in New York. I mean, this is unbelievable stuff. But yeah, Frank, Frank Zappa had an incredible, incredible mind for understanding the political system. But he'd get away with it because people would say, oh, he's just Frank Zappa. He's a weirdo. He's a nutcase. So Char Martin, Charlie Sheen, sorry, I believe, I agree with you what he said, but his point was he was too bloody direct about it. I think that there's a lot of people in Hollywood and a lot of people in the media that have feelings about things that are much darker and deeper than they actually let on. And the only way we get them out is true, like, outrageous stars who let it leak out now and again. I think his problem was he was too direct. And, of course, there are some uh, items of pop culture that not because they're not popular because they were part of what we discussed earlier, the top down, push it onto the people, but they've. They are of quality, but they just have reached a, a wide audience. I'm thinking of a film, for example, like The Matrix. There are items out there that come under the pop culture banner and sometimes under the cult 
uh, banner that have, I think, some profound messages for us. The Matrix, I mean, I just think it's full of information about saying this is how it actually is. I mean, you could break that down. I'm sure it's been done already line by line, scene by scene. And everything is significant and important. A film like John Carpenter's They Live, much, yep. much more crude and simplistic. But when you look back at that and when he put that together and how prescient it seemed, it's, it's stunning, really. You got it. And going back even earlier, you've got a TV series like The Prisoner. And we know that Patrick McGoon, the star of that, previously been a big star, you know, an action spy series called Danger Man. And we know that he went through a personal transformation that he made the prisoner not because he'd lost his mind or taken drugs or anything that not at all. He was trying to tell us something. And of course, then Stanley Kubrick books could be written on that guy and what what's in his films, what he's trying to put across. And indeed, there's some controversy regarding the end of his life and his final film, Eyes Wide Shut. So there is stuff out there that's getting through, you know, it's, it's stuff from beyond the Matrix just to, you know, coin a phrase. It is filtering through if we if we know what we're looking for, we trust our senses and intuition a little bit. Well, I'm a huge fan of horror films. I have been for years and I have a huge horror uh, DVD collection. And that's not because I enjoy gore or anything like that, but I find that horror films are full of this kind of stuff. You look at films like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing from the early 1980s, that deals with the whole idea of blood contamination, even though it's, you know, it's set in the Antarctica and there's a bunch of guys down there and they're, they're, they're worried they've been contaminated by this alien DNA, but it ties into the whole AIDS thing. It ties into the whole phobia around AIDS at the time. Oh, and there's some very good horror films out there that, that do kind of blow the whistle in the way. There's one Hammer horror film called uh, Demons of the Mind from the ninth, early 19, late 1960s, early 70s. And it deals with the whole way that psycho, the psychoanalytical techniques used by the uh, aristocrats and how their own neuroses is imposed upon us in the culture. People have, you know, we've looked at everything else. We've looked at so many films, but horror contains so much. There's another John Carpenter film I would tell people to watch. It's Halloween 3. It's called, it's subtitled as The Season of the Witch. And it's about how this sort of megalomaniac, sort of demon-worshipping pagan guy is deciding to have a cull of the population on Halloween night by putting these uh, these things in Halloween, children's Halloween masks that's activated by a control signal put on the television. And he makes this whole speech about the earth cannot sustain Western people anymore and we need a cull like we had in the days of the Druids. And did, did this, did people like John Carpenter know things, just like Stanley Kubrick knew things. They may not be as superb filmmakers in that sense, but it doesn't mean you, you see these motifs, these sort of secret subliminal messages almost given to us. It's funny in a way, you know, like we often talk about, like in the alternative scene and whatever, people talk about all these Freemasons giving, giving messages to each other through nods and wings. But I, I actually think many film directors and and even authors like Cormac McCarthy, who did the who wrote The Road, which is a phenomenal book. I think it's one of the best. Made into that amazing film. He was giving us messages too. We're all, we're constantly giving messages through these people, and that's another thing. You know, you have to remember. Like I've done a lot of work into the whole idea of psychopaths. Psychopaths are devious, and psychopaths are clever, but they miss the sort of subtle nuances in in art. They miss the sort of subliminal undercurrents, the noetic kind of truths in literature, art and music. And artists right back for centuries have been using 
music and in recent times cinema in particular people like Alan Moore has even been doing it with comic books to slip these ideas through under the eyes of the controlling psychopaths who think it's just a basic story about slashing and killing and murdering or whatever or action to the real story that subtext below there that people in the know say oh this is what he's really trying to say I don't think the discussion would be complete regarding your book if we didn't touch upon the subject of modern and conceptual art because I'd be very interested to to hear what you think about the intentions behind some of this stuff, the function of it, the, the meaning or lack thereof. And I'm thinking of people like Damien Hurst, Tracy Emin, um, Andre Serrano, stuff that I find to be mostly just bewildering. Um, I mean, a, some, a Serrano thing, for example, uh, when I saw the, the photograph that the Piss Christ, which people can look up if they're interested, I thought, oh, that looks that looks quite nice. Uh, I, just, I just found the... The image appealing, and then I found out that it was this small plastic statue of um, of, of Jesus uh, immersed in the artist's own urine. And I just, mm. I, I kind of thought, what's the point? I mean, I get conceptual art. You know, and I, I understand you can be a message in that in itself. Beyond, for me, it's like art. I won't say what art is. We could be here all night. But if I walk into a room and there's something hanging on the wall, or there's an object sitting on a table that somebody says, oh, that's art, whether it is or not. If, if I find it pleasing or edifying or it speaks to me in some way, then that's what will make me like it, not because it's ugly or it's controversial because it offends most people or because it seems to be tasteless to most people. So just maybe your thoughts on that. Well, no art movement has lasted as long as conceptual art. It's been gone for a century. Remember, other artistic movements lasted far shorter. Uh, the Impressionist was about 20 years at the most. And yet we have this conceptual art movement that started basically after World War One. True are things like the Dadaist movement. A lot of it had to do with the shock of World War One and the absurdity of European society that actually led to that carnage. And I thought, like yourself, I, I understand where it came from. But why is this? Why is this? Why do we still have? You know, the whole thing of you know, artist shit was displayed in a can nearly a century ago, and we're still doing that today and calling it cutting edge. This is very strange to me. Why this, this what they call shock art or conceptual art has lasted so long when the, the novelty and the surprise of it should have worn off about 70 years ago. It's still being shoved in our faces by the galleries. And I had a long th think about this a couple of years ago and I finally figured out what I think is the reason why. It has to do again with advertising. This stuff began literally around the time really good printing technology came out and you've had the first colour magazines the first colour adverts, the first really good colour posters on billboards. And it was very it was very important for the advertisers to make sure that the that the art in the galleries did not outshine the art within the uh, the advertising. So what happened was you would find that there's a very big there's a very big link between advertising and the art scenes and has been for a while. A lot of the endowments for the arts, what they, what, especially what they have in America, where our corporations give large amounts of money for exhibitions, they will give it to this kind of art. You will find that advertisers in the UK are very heavily involved in people like sponsoring people like Damien Hurst and uh, Tracy Eam. Again, the stuff has no spiritual appeal. It's not colorful. It's not even particularly interesting. But then you walk outside the gallery and you see an ad for Coca-Cola or McDonald's or an iPhone and it looks absolutely spectacular and I believe that this thing was done to diminish 
to diminish the power of public art in the galleries, both and also public sculpture, sculptures, so they would not compete with advertising, particularly colour billboards. Another aspect of this too that kind of proves it for me is that in the pop art scene in the 1960s, which is really the beginning of the sort of like the pointlessness of, of actual visual art, where things paintings were very flat, there was no depth, very soulless and emotional, emotionless. A lot of these artists came out of UCLA art, uh, advertising school, advertising majors, advertising majors, people who are studying graphic design and advertising. And this is where Andy Warhol came from, too, remember? I remember his, what was his famous thing? Campbell's soup cans and Brillo, Brillo boxes. And suddenly these guys are transformed into the great artists of their time. Again, I really do believe, in fact, I think I can prove it, that the reason why public art has been destroyed is because advertising sees it as a rivalry. Quite something that would um, speak to us and uplift us and not ask for really anything in return. Exactly. And you go outside and you see the billboard and you want to buy that because it's actually a relief from the, from the drudgery, inane, debase and pointlessness of what is in the public art gallery. I don't know if you've been to the Tate Modern in London. It, the, when you, the building from the outside is phenomenal. It's fantastic. An old 1930s Art Deco power station. But when you go in, what could have been an amazing art gallery is just atrocious. Most of it is a big back, black box where the old turbines were with some silly video, conceptual sort of art video installation thing is playing. And you walk through it and, and so much of this amazing building is wasted. And there's even like, I've, I've even got a photograph of one, one display, one installation that's a picture of a piece of paper with ruled lines on it, like you'd buy in any stationery shop, and next to it a pen. And the artist is trying to make some statement about, you know, the, 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 great, the great story that hasn't been told yet. And large amounts of public money is pumped into this. And I'm, I'm amazed that people are not more, uh, and particularly artists are not, you know, upset about this, because you'll be called uh, an uncultured uh, Nazi who's, a, who's, against, who's for censorship, if you, if you dare say anything about it. So they're playing on their minds and their insecurities as well. Convincing the sort of average Joe on the street that he doesn't have discernment or taste um, or the education. Of course, in many cases, uh, the education system is a problem. But basically, we don't know. We can't tell good from crap, nor should we even try. Yeah. And if we dare mention something that speaks to us spiritually, then we're nuts because we all know that we don't have spirits because... They've given us Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens to tell us that that's all the delusion and it's just a mixture of chemicals and we're DNA robots and that's the end of it. So we shouldn't even be seeking any kind of spiritual uplifting or even to be frightened by it. You know, I remember you can also be you can also be amazed by art that challenges you, you know, in a very sort of intense way. You know, um, you know, like the paintings of Geiger and an artist like that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's again, like the horror film. It's 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 making you go into parts of your mind to look at your shadow. But you know, what shadow does a bed with you know old condoms and cigarette boxes say about it? It says nothing. No, it says tidy up, basically. <laughs> but um, in terms of we talked a lot about music today. There's a reason why it's the universal language and why it, it moves people so much. You know, I was going to say everybody has got some music that they love, but actually there's a few people, and no doubt your work in Psychopaths would have something to say about this, but I don't trust people who say they don't really like music. And actually, George Bush, uh, the idiot younger Bush, uh, he, he actually claimed on record that he didn't really like music and didn't listen to it, and I think that says a lot. But music, when it's working 
for the performer and the listener. It's, it's modern day shamanism. Oh, absolutely. Big time it is. Big time. That is that that is it. I've you know haven't played myself and I've been to many concerts. That's exactly what it is. It is the modern day shamanism. It purges out the negative energy. It uh, it, it purges the shadow. You know, I mentioned in the book Dave Navarro of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Jane's Addiction. His murder his mother was murdered by her partner when he was fourteen. He started playing heavy metal and punk to drown out the sound of the bullets. If that's not a shamanistic. Uh, you know, expression, then nothing is. The idea is to go in there and pull this stuff out. You know, like in a lot of heavy metal, you have like the sort of de the death rock or the satanic rock. This is not celebrating these kinds of things. Black Sabbath weren't telling you to worship the devil or anything like that. They were talking about exploring this the shadow of man and in, in doing it, creative, you know, that's why their music was so powerful and so enduring. Black Sabbath's early tours of the United States, they were, they were actually pop filled with Vietnam veterans that had just come back from Vietnam, many of them in wheelchairs and things like that, who would absolutely go crazy during a song like War Pigs. That is shamanism 101, and that's the nearest we have to today. Now, you brought up a fascinating point there, and something that I've actually discovered about psychopaths in music, that psychopaths don't have a taste in music. They will listen to whatever they think people want them to listen to. You can actually look at a psychopath's record collection and talk about diversity. They'll have Susan Boyle next to Nine Inch Nails. It's because they knew somebody who liked Susan Boyle, so they pretended they were into that. And they liked somebody who liked Nine Inch Nails, so they pretend they were into that as well. And that's, that's what they're like. They don't get music because the frontal cortex in their brain is just suppressed. There's something wrong there. And they don't get that. They don't, they don't have that feeling for these things. That when George, Bush, I never knew that George Bush made that statement, but it's bang on. And that's why, I, it's true, I don't trust people that don't have a deep feeling for music. I'm not putting them down, but I just think there's something not wrong there. I don't care if you're into country music. I don't care if you're into barbershop. I don't care if you're into death metal. If you genuinely care about that music and it really touches you and you're really into it, to me that's always been a very good sign of a human being. It's always been something like that. There's somebody who's really tapped into something that really speaks to them. And it's something, it, it, it says something about them that's actually very well. And I don't care. I mean, I know people that are like, there's, there's groups that I would never, ever like. But they're really good, like country rock bands from the 70s. But the people into that, they really, really do love that music. And you have to respect that. So I think music is so powerful that... That's And it's so profound that we're never told that. That's why they're always trying to trivialize it. That's why they're always trying to have us listen to the Birdie song. Why they're always having to try and listen to stupid novelty records from Tiny Tim in the 60s. All the 80s was filled with terrible novelty records. In fact, the 60s, if you look at the top records in the 60s, you would say to somebody, the 60s, in the, music, the 60s music was fantastic, wasn't it? The Beatles, the Stones, the Who, you know, the Animals, so on. If you look at the charts, the number one selling records were things like Up, Up and Away in My Beautiful Balloon, uh, MacArthur Park, uh, Tiny Tim's Tiptoe Through the Tulips, and all these other, the, the Partridge Family, and all these silly, silly, boring records that were aimed at the, the mind of a four-year-old. So again, they do not like us. They do not like us expressing ourselves through our own music. But if they do come across, but they're also aware of the power of music. Hence why the Obama 2008 campaign, the jingle, that thing, Obama, Obama, that kid singing, that was such, that was such an, a spell to get you to vote for that guy because that thing would stick in your head. Again, the jingles are in advertising as well. There's that great Simpsons episode where they want to sing American folk songs and they start singing commercials. 
Yeah, what I notice, um, just a uh, related point to that, is when there are rare occasions, but there have been a few, where a song that I liked or really liked has been co-opted for an advert. And quite often they won't use the original recording or they'll use a sort of an altered version of it. How its character changes and the life has gone from it, it, it just becomes something else. It's like, you know, a reanimated corpse. I was listening to Comfortably Numb, done by Roger Waters, and he had, I don't know, someone, Snowy White or someone do the guitar bit, and Snowy White's a really good guitar player, I really liked him when he was in Tennessee, doing the, the Dave Gilmore guitar bit, and Van Morrison doing the, the, the falsetto, higher vocal that Dave Gilmore normally did, and it sounded absolutely horrible. And it's like, that's one of my all-time favorite songs. Now, what you talk about the energy and the, 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 the feeling and the spiritual depth of a song, in the 1970s, I don't know when I was a kid, I don't know I don't know how old you are, Greg, but you may remember these records. There were a series of albums called Top of the Pops. And they had usually a picture of a girl on the cover in a, in a brand knickers outfit made from wool <laughs> and a cowboy hat. But what they were were all the songs, they'd come out like once every month. And they were all the songs in the, they were K-Tel, one of these record companies. They were all the songs in the chart I'd say the top 20, so you didn't have to buy all the singles. This was the idea. You get this album, and you get all the, you get like 20 songs that were the top 20 of the previous month, but they were cover versions done by sort of like session musicians. And I can remember the first time as a kid, I must have been about, I don't know, about nine, eight or nine, and it was the first, one of the first songs I ever heard that really moved me was Wishing Well by Free. And I remember thinking, like, hearing that on the radio, it was just, I just, that was like, that's my music. The way that that's 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 what I like. And my mother bought me a top that one of these top of the pops albums, and that song was done by session musicians uh, as well as all the other songs. And I remember thinking, even as a young kid, okay, it's the same song. It sounds just like it. It's the, you know I didn't know about music then, but obviously the guitar chords and the key and everything is right, and the singer sounds okay. But it wasn't free. It wasn't that song. It wasn't that sound. And that was a very big moment in me more in life because I started to realize that music was much more than a verse, a chorus, a guitar solo, bass and guitars. That it was actually a spiritual construct in a way. That there was some kind of magical thing there. And that magical thing could only be captured by the specific unit that created it. Oh, absolutely. And uh, an example for me when I discovered exactly the same thing is when they used what I initially thought was um, Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love as the the top of the, top of the pops theme yeah. tune exactly and but then it was it was subtly different and interestingly both uh, Jimmy Page uh, from Led Zeppelin and Robert Plant they've spoken about this you know the music not necessarily for that song but a lot of their music being downloaded into their brains from some other source it's not them doing it it is it's a spiritual source and uh, so I had that, exactly the same feeling when I heard that oh yeah that's true I mean my own paintings my own music my own everything. And when I'm in the zone or when it just happens, I'm sorry, it just comes from somewhere else. It's like there's a river, a river of sort of like creative consciousness that flows through us. And you can dip your hand in it. And it's every so often you have that magical moment where you can dip your hand in it and pull something from it. Mozart even said the same. When Mozart was asked where his music comes from, he says, I just don't know. Mm. So it is. It's a special thing. But it's true. It's absolutely true. And you can tell when it's fake. And you don't even have to be an expert in music. You can just tell. You just know. Uh, as we begin to wind things up for today, I just want to say that for me, the narrow bandwidth, if you will, or frequency range that pop culture seems to represent within the sort of wider, you know, sort of human experience is being really 
thrown into sharp relief by cutting edge research of all types, including science, uh, which is showing a reality of a much wider world, really. And the notion of the energetic universe and the interconnectivity of everything. And not only does that show us that this narrow bandwidth of sort of pop culture and what have you, it, just how narrow it is, but it increasingly looks like it's, it's, as you say in your book, it's in place there to perform a function of restraint, control, indoctrination for the gain of someone other than ourselves. Yeah, I call them the lords of perception. It was just a catch-all phrase I used. It could be anything from record companies to marketing executives to TV, you know, publicity people. But the idea is to actually control our perceptions through popular culture, through creating tastes that we not, that are not necessarily our own by using very scientific methods now, I have to say. I mean, there's a, they, these people are very clever. They know exactly what they're doing, especially if you look at that Tin Pan Alley thing in New York up until the 60s where you had songwriters. Carol King, I think, came out of there and Neil Sedaka. These people were they – were, they weren't just songwriters. They were almost like scientists, like audio sonic scientists where they actually were figuring out that a certain kind of phrase lyric with a certain kind of chord at a certain kind of tempo would actually get a hit and then he would actually build more hits upon that. George Martin with the Beatles, he actually was a member, he was actually involved in, a lot of people don't know this, the BBC Stereo uh, Polyphonic Workshop where they used to do incredible things with sound by using tapes played backwards and have long wires that used to fly pieces of tapes with like a piece of music in a different key to create like synthesizer rhythms back in the 1950s he came out of that he was more than just their producer he was actually you know an alchemist uh, you know a sonic alchemist that's what he was that's why the Beatles records were so phenomenally successful and s sounded like nothing else and today when you listen to them today they still sound as pretty good as they did back then particularly the later albums in terms of their production quality so they, they they're, this is a science this is not this is not something that happens by chance this is People, you know, these, these big shots in corporations and marketing are aware that there's people that have certain gifts. Like I said, tin, like the, the, the song Alley, the Timpan Alley song thing they had back in New York, or the, you know, George Martin, or people like that, that they can know Quincy Jones. They know that these people have a special gift to craft a sound, or they know an artist or a graphic designer has a special gift to craft a visual production. And they recognize these people's power, and then they put these people in positions of enormous power, enormous power. And in many cases, these people have no idea of their own responsibility. And that brings us back to John Lennon. It's a good place to finish here. That I don't think John Lennon, when he made that statement in June 6, 1968, that the world is run by maniacs, that he fully understood the responsibility and the power that he had over the population of the earth. But my God, the people who brought him down certainly did. And that really is the whole story of the Amble of the Psyche and the kind of world we live in. Well, in conclusion, Thomas, would you like to perhaps share with listeners information about where they can get the book, um, your website? And I don't know if you've got any events coming up. I know you've been doing some speaking engagements uh, recently. Uh, the, my website is thomassheridanarts.com. Uh, you can get the link to all the books from there. The, my books are all available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual online outlets. I have, I'm in the process of getting a load of speaking dates ready for 2013. I'll be back in the UK 
uh, I'll be doing workshops and stuff like that and hopefully I'm also work, setting up some dates in Europe as well so there's, it seems to be taken off there seems to be a real interest now more and more people are realizing that there's a there's something funny going on and there's also a change in the alternative media or the conspiracy theory media whatever you want to call it more and more people are looking for answers that are a little more deeper and a little more grounded in how they can sell them to their friends and their families rather than you know sort of like you know i'm not saying these stuff these things aren't true but the more sort of the difficult theories and the difficult ideas for the average person to accept i think i can see definitely a sea change within the movement where more and more people are saying well i can convince somebody that my neighbors or my friend or my brother or my sister or my wife that there's something going on through a TV show or an ad or even the way a political speech is given. I think there's a hunger for that information now. So it's, I think it's, a, it's interestingly enough, I think it's a very exciting time within this movement now going forward. We've been through sort of like the, the sensationalist and sort of like the nervous breakdown with the sudden realization idea that the world is run by crazy people. We've gone through the full mill of that and now we're back to the point where there's a maturity and in how in, people can individually sell their is their their impression or their their knowledge of what the control system works. Some are doing through the legal system. Some have been interested in the money system. My thing has been psychopaths and culture. And so there's there's ways of doing that. And I think it's a very exciting time. So I'm looking forward to seeing where the future goes. Now there's definitely a maturity now coming into the alternative movement, which is badly needed. Excellent. Well, Thomas Sheridan, thank you very much for joining us once again on legalizefreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Well, that's it for another time. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd urge you to check out the website, which is legalize-freedom.com. You can spell legalize with an S or a Z, where you'll find an archive of shows on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. The movement was begun eight months ago by a small group of scientists who discovered, quite by accident, these signals being sent. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. We are focused only on our own game. Please understand, they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated. Blow it out your ass.